1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, that'd be really great. And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word is alive. It's relevant for today. I thank you for that wonderful reminder that you're a God who is reaching people from all different nations, tribes and tongues, including in Apollo in Poland. And we thank you that you've given us a great privilege to be part of that work. Settle our hearts and minds now as we hear from you through your word. And Holy Spirit, help us to apply these truths for the glory and fame of the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to dive straight into it this morning. Uh, and as, as if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, we've been um, traveling through the book of 1 Peter. We've been looking at this idea of this wonderful, glorious truth of what does it mean to be living with hope and how this living with hope actually shapes our lives, that we've actually been given eternal salvation. And that means that correlates to our life every day. Not just on Sundays, not during just small group. Because the gospel is a good news that continues to compel our lives. And where we are picking up in 1 Peter 2 today is that that conversation is still going between Peter and the churches that he's writing to. And initially, we kind of started and it almost set the scene that you could easily individualize these passages. But now Peter is really quite specifically driving into three particular areas. And today, I hope to, we'll see how we go, cover three things. One, what does it look like to live as a tasteful community in this world? In verses 1 to 3. What does it look like to live as an accepted community? Then finally, what does it look like to live as a chosen community in verses 11 to 12? So, verses 1 to 3 of 1 Peter chapter chapter 2 says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, look for the pure spiritual milk that by, by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, like I was saying to you guys before, that Peter is writing and he's now going quite specific. He's instructing the churches. These are commands that he's encouraging them to do. What he's doing is he's saying to them is because now that you are holy, you've been set aside, you've been born again, and not only that, you've been given a living hope, an eternal hope, there are some key things you should typify your life. He actually says, put away malice, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy, put away envy and put away slander. He's saying to these churches, I want you to grab these things, and it's like putting it into a suitcase and throwing it in the deepest of all seas. And notice the language that he's using. He's saying all of it, not just some of it, all of it, throw it away. Now look at that list. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. These aren't necessarily external things. I think these lists, and I would say, when I look at it, I go, whoa, these are deep heart stuff. This is like heart stuff that Peter is drilling deep into their hearts and souls. Now remember, he's writing not just to an individual, he's writing to a whole community. And this is, actually goes countercultural in the world that we live in. When you and I come to church, whether we want to admit it or not, we come in some sense as individuals. And we sing worship songs which are wonderful, but most of our worship songs talk about you 
and I. But often in the New Testament, it was a whole community individually. So when Peter's writing this to this church, I want you to imagine if you're someone within this church. And Peter says, this is how you ought to live. Don't do these things. And if you're a list person, you decide to write Monday to Friday. And you give Saturday as a day off just to kind of unleash a little bit. And between Monday to Friday, you write a list. And you think to yourself... Ooh, how have I gone this week? Have I been malicious? Oh, how have I gone this week? Have I been deceitful? Oh, you know, actually I haven't done too bad. And then you rock up to church and the elders of the church are waiting for you and say, hey, have you got your list? Can we have a look at it? Let's do a community survey. and put it up on the screen, the results. Everyone's pretty happy, but then there's one guy. His name's Dave. Dave's dropped the ball. He's dropped the team. The team has dropped the ball. Because the elders have seen what Dave has put on his Facebook page this week. The reason why I'm using this language is in this moment, as you read this, please don't individualize it. It's a community of believers that Peter's writing to. It's saying that how you live individually, how you live will actually impact your whole community. And so it's about a community kind of language that Peter's saying. Now remember how Peter's been constantly drumming this one big idea, right? That they are born again, they've been, uh, they're a holy group of people, that the living word of the gospel now lives in them. Well, that gospel should be a motivation on how you live in this world. It should actually correlate in your life every day, moment by moment. It would be like if you were going to a gym, And you rock up to the gym and the personal trainer says to you, sits you down, puts out a big plan for you on how you need to exercise, what you need to eat, what weights you do for weight loss. And you think to yourself, okay, this guy must know what he's talking about. And they push you through the limits to the point that you end up throwing up after your exercise routine. And you're like, man, this guy's really helping me out here. And you go get changed, and you walk outside, you turn around, and there's a personal trainer with a cigarette in one hand and a bucket of Wicked Wings from KFC. (laughs) Something does not fit right. All the talk does not fit his lifestyle. Now, when you read this list, some of us will go a couple of ways. Some of us will go to despair and go, oh, I'm really bad at this. Some of us will go, oh, I hope Dave is listening to this because he really needs to hear this. And see, in verses 2 to 3, we're given the how and the why. The how and the why. Look at verses 2 to 3 again. See how he says to them, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He gives an everyday picture. We've got three kids, and as our kids grew up, and they loved mum's milk, and they love it, and they're, that season in life, they're crying, and they want that milk, and they got to the point where that, you know, they would just do all these kind of neck movements every time mum was around. They were so hungry for this pure milk. Then the day comes when you wean them off, and you place this milk, and in this bottle, they're drinking it, and there's this picture in their mouth of what is this stuff this is not the milk that i'm used to you have deceived me 
Now, what Peter's doing in this moment is using common day picture. In those days, watering down was quite common, watering down the wine. They actually watered down the milk as well in those days. And in some sense, this church, the group of churches most probably would have been young Christians. He's saying to them, hey, churches, I want you to yearn for this spiritual milk. And the spiritual milk we've been hearing constantly in 1 Peter, that is the gospel. In order that you may grow in maturity from being an infant to mature spiritual adulthood. But notice what he's saying. This is not about working your way up. Or neither is it just about keeping a list and stopping that and doing those things. It's actually replacing it. It's actually saying you're yearning for something so, so much more beautiful than those things. You're yearning for the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the things that you want. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what will help you grow. This is the how. It's like saying the goodness of the gospel, the the pureness of the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to say no. See, because of the gospel, we are then called not to be malicious because Christ doesn't hold anything against us. It's because the gospel God has forgiven us. It's the gospel that has revealed this truth to us. It is the gospel that reveals to us we don't need to be deceitful. Because Christ has shown mercy. He knows all. The gospel is this truth. The gospel is this reminder to you and I that we have no space to be envious. Because God has shown us so grace and mercy. The gospel is a reminder to you and I that Christ infirms us in him. So that means we don't have to slander. We don't need to go there because that's an affront and opposition to the gospel truth in our lives. This is the how. And based on that, then he talks about the why in verse 3. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Those words aren't in quotation marks, but most probably Peter is quoting something that was quite familiar to him from Psalm 34 verse 8, which says, O oh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now he doesn't quote the whole thing based on that psalm. He stops at the tasting bit is where we get. If you want to know the behavior change in your life and my life for a follower of Jesus... It's because we've tasted the goodness of Christ. That's the motivation for behavior change. And when the psalmist was writing this, he's speaking about God, Yahweh, the covenant God who has a relationship with Israel. But Peter goes a bit further and says, if you taste the Lord Jesus, the goodness of Christ, what is that goodness? We've been exploring that in 1 Peter. The gospel, the good news. The gospel has shown mercy to us. His grace, His forgiveness. Then if you've tasted this, why would you and I want to be malicious, deceitful, hypocritical, envious, or slanderous? Put it away. Put it away. Cambridge Gardens Community Church, have you tasted this goodness? And our command to you and us through God's word, through the power of His Spirit, is to say, put it away. And that's how we live as a tasteful community. When we have tasted the goodness of God. And I wonder if the reason why you and I often struggle with this reality of being malicious and deceitful, hypocritical, envious and slanderous. Because we've listened to those deceitful voices. We've tasted that deceitful lies in that list that Peter's given to us and it's deceived our hearts. 
rather than meditating on the goodness of Christ, our Savior. The one who was perfectly not malicious, the one who was perfectly not deceitful, the one who was perfectly not hypocritical and missed or slanderous, the one who was willing to taste the bitter cup of the Father's wrath so that you and I could taste his goodness and grace of the gospel. And this is something that we need to taste every day, moment by moment. It is like grabbing an intravenous line and putting it into your heart, heart and tasting it, moment by moment, so we may grow to be a tasteful community. And because we've tasted this, because we have tasted that the Lord is good, then it should then cause us to be a particular kind of community that lives as an accepted community. And so we're going to be spending a bit of time in verses 4 to 10. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter starts addressing this group of churches in a particular way. It's quite a unique way. What he does is he first says, hey, as you approach Jesus, and he describes Jesus in a very significant way, he says, as you approach Jesus as a living stone, I notice, I don't know if you've noticed, there's many living stones around. He's using that specific language for a purpose to say, this Savior, this Jesus is resurrected. But this one who was resurrected also had to be rejected by men. But in God's sight, in the Father's sight, he's precious. Now, he's writing to these churches and he goes further and he says, hey, churches of dispersion, you are living stones. That God is at work in your lives. He's doing some renovation work. That you are actually being built up into a spiritual house. And this spiritual house is not without any purpose. You have a purpose. You've been given the title of a holy priesthood. And as a priesthood, you're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God only through one person, the high, great high priest that is Jesus Christ. And to explain his point further, he gives them a bit of a mini Bible lesson, and he quotes three passages. First, he quotes from Isaiah 28:16, then he quotes from Psalm 118:22, then he quotes from Isaiah 8:14. If you have a physical Bible, there's a little letter next to those quotes. That little letter will point you to a footnote, and that footnote will tell you where those passages are found in its original context. He's saying to these churches, "Hey, because You now are a living stone because of the greater, bigger living stone in Christ. And now that you are this living stone, you are actually a spiritual home. And in this spiritual home, you've been given a title. You are a holy priesthood. 
And that means you can approach the creator of the universe. Not through mediators or anything. You just approach through Christ himself. And to prove that point, he quotes a passage in Isaiah. Where he talks about that stone. This living stone is the cornerstone. Now, if you've grown up in the Christian church for a while... These kind of things are the stuff that we easily kind of just skim over and go, oh, yeah, that's an old passage from the background. Yeah, you know. And I sometimes wonder we lose the weight and beauty and the depth of these kind of quotes that uh, people put in the Bible like Peter has. See, for us on this side of the cross, in the side of the empty tomb, and this side of having the full canon of Scripture, the weight and beauty of this is really missed. See, for the hearers, the original hearers of this letter, it would have been deeply encouraging See, these churches are dispersed. They are facing a persecution for their faith. They're going to be kicked out for their faith. They're going to be uh, maybe even uh, murdered for their faith. They're facing all different kinds of trials, which we'll explore next week. But yet, they've been told they have a particular status. And to hear that they're actually living stones, that they're actually being built up, that they are a royal priesthood, that their sacrifices that they offer are not actually physical sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices all made possible because of Christ. We've been deeply encouraged for a group of churches, a young group of churches. And they're not all to be shown that this was actually God's ultimate salvation plan. In the first passage of Isaiah that Peter quotes, he talks about a stone, this cornerstone. Uh, See, there's in the history of the Bible, there's this picture of a temple, the physical temple that was there. God was uh, set up this temple. There were sacrifices. There was a whole system around it. And there were unique things that these group of people had to do, the group of uh, the Israelites. There were priesthoods that they had to go and meet and bring sacrifices on behalf of the mediator of the people. The temple was also, in the context of Isaiah here, was a symbol of security. They thought if they had the temple, they thought if they had the sacrifices going, they would be fine. It's all good. But the reality was that they would not be fine at all. There was something that was deeper going on. It was a reminder that all the sacrifices, all the issues would actually not cover the deeper issue. The deeper issue of what was going on in their hearts. And so God's promise is that he will send someone, a cornerstone, a chosen one, and whoever believes in him. Do you know in the original passage that um, they quote in Isaiah, it actually doesn't even talk about him. Peter actually puts it in here in this. He actually says, in him, he's saying, here is this Jesus. See, in those days, the cornerstone was quite unique. It was quite labor-intensive. Uh, they were actually selected specifically for a particular job. It's distinguished. And it was also the first stone that was placed. And then the temple was built around it. It was, in a sense, set the square of the temple. And Peter's using this whole passage to point to the group of churches, hey, guess what? You know that physical temple, that cornerstone? Well, there's a better cornerstone. This precious one. He is Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. He's saying the plan of God's plan has always been the fulfillment of God's salvation plan. The physical temple was pointing ultimately to the greater one in Jesus Christ. 
that at the end of the day, a temple of sacrifices will not cover the sin that's going on in your heart. And so he says to them that if you believe in this, there's honor for you. The Christian reformer Martin Luther once said that scriptures are the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. He's saying, ultimately, the purpose of Scripture is to reveal God's amazing salvation plan fulfilled in Jesus. Because He is the one who, and He was the only one who could offer the ultimate sacrifice. As a precious cornerstone, He begins to build a spiritual home, and in this spiritual home would come and live the Spirit of God in the hearts of all those who gave their lives to Christ. Oh, Christian, do you see the value of this today? Do you see the value of this today, even today, as you think on this? That Christ has not just given you eternal life, that He is far more and greater than that, He's far more valuable. And then from there, He says there's warning to those who totally reject this truth. And He quotes Psalm 118 22. Now, the words that he quotes is quite interesting. He says, The stone of the builder's rector has become a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling block. He continues in that. Now, the words that he uses from Psalm is not anything unique to Peter. Peter would have heard Jesus himself say these words. He would have heard Jesus say this when he interacted with the leaders at the time. Jesus was interacting with the leaders, and the leaders are saying, Who gives you this authority? And Jesus responds and quotes and says, You're going to reject the cornerstone. God's judgment has come. And there is a new cornerstone. Later on in Peter's life, in the account in Acts, Peter once again quotes this. In Acts 4, 8, 12, he's engaging. He's been pulled aside for proclaiming the gospel. He's in trouble for doing it. And his response to the leaders of that time is to say this, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well. And this is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Notice what he says and adds to this quote. He says to them, you know, all your Jewish heritage, all the sacrifices, all those things will not save you. There is only one name that will save you. It would have been quite confronting for those people even now. He even says to them that you've rejected this Messiah, this cornerstone. And this rejection has now become a permanent reminder for you. And he's also become a stumbling block for you. And the quote that he uses in Isaiah 8 is, the context is Isaiah, God is encouraging Isaiah to find refuge in him. And it's wonderful words that he uses in this. He goes on further and says to them, Hey, when you look at these people, they are ultimately stumbling over Christ. And it's shown in the way that they disobey the word. For those of us who are exploring the Christian faith, I just want to say this to you today. Whether you realize this or not, you are building your life around other things that will never, ever be stable. 
And the gospel may cause you to stumble. The gospel may be of offense to you. And there's a part of you that will disobey. But until you come to the realization that you were designed to build your life around Jesus Christ, you will never be fully satisfied. I want you to know this Jesus Christ was willing to be rejected so that you could be accepted. So would you believe in his word? Would you respond to that gospel today? Maybe ask a friend who bought you. Christian friends, for those of us, as we look at these passages, this is not and cannot be a place for us to grow in arrogance or thinking that we're better, but actually should cause us to be more empathetic to our friends who don't know Jesus. Because until they realize they can only find true life in Christ himself, until they find out they can only build themselves around Christ, they will continue to stumble. They will continue to trip over. They will continue to find Christ as an offense. And what is our response? Verses 9 to 10. And I'll finish very quickly because I know it's 12 o'clock. This is what it says in verses 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's writing to these group of churches and they're saying, hey, they are now, because of this truth, to live as a family, a chosen family, a kingly priesthood, a holy group of people, as God's tribe. And they are not called to now all of a sudden become a holy huddle and stick to themselves. No, they've been given a wonderful, glorious task to declare the wonderful virtues of Jesus Christ, the one who called them out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. And I love the words that he says to them. Once they were not a people. They had no citizenship, but now they are a citizen of heaven. Once they were under the wrath of God, but now they've received mercy. For those hearers, it would have been deeply, I think, quite beautiful to hear this. These are people we'll talk about next week, about being servants and slaves, not necessarily having rights or properties or homes. And here they are hearing these words. They would be often facing no mercy. These words would have been deeply encouragement, encouraging for them. Christian friends, for you and I, that is the same thing for us. I hope these words continue to stir us. I hope it overwhelms you with a sense of the grace that you've been shown in Christ. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, please understand these words are once again a reminder to you and I the call to us is not to become a holy huddle, particularly in the culture that we live in today. That as an accepted community in Christ, we've been given this wonderful privilege. And hopefully these verses motivate you. Motivate you and I to be witnesses in this broken world. In a world that desperately needs to hear the excellencies of Christ the Christ who saved you out of darkness into light. The Christ who you're under his wrath has forgiven you. One of those excellencies, we have discovered that 
in 1 Peter, haven't we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These are the sum of the excellencies that are described. So in the midst of your debates about marriage equality, about science versus God, about our God is better than the other gods, about the accuracy of Scripture, in all those apologies that you're engaging with and you should engage with them, can I implore you, can I call out to you to ensure that you proclaim the excellencies of Christ to your friends who desperately need to hear that. Desperately need to hear that. Because until they come and are confronted by that truth, they will not understand why you ought to live that way. They will not see that. To further the case, he then finally finishes. Beloved, I urge you, sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. He urges the churches to do two things. As people who are foreigners, to keep away from those fleshly desires that were going to war against their flesh. And the language that he uses is to say, hey, I want you to battle. I want you to fight. And it's a wonderful reminder that the battle is never going to be out there. The battle will always begin from within, in you, in your soul. It's a reminder for you and I today when we feel like it's out there, the battle's out there. No, firstly, it begins in your heart. Never put your guard down on these vices that battle your soul. But battle them as citizens of heaven, as a foreigner to this earth. And because of that, the values and the things of the kingdom are the things that dictate your lifestyle. Because that's where we belong. This is not our home. This is why we choose to keep away from sin. Friends, I think the best way to fight sin is to be reminded of who we are as a community. And as we rest in this truth, we will continue to grow to desire the things of heaven and the things of the kingdom of God more than the things of this world. And a lot of that should bear witness to people watching us. Peter's ensuring, I think, to ensure that this group of churches don't stay a holy huddle, that they are going to be good witnesses both internally, what's going on in their lives, then externally, by appealing to them and asking them to ensure that they maintain their behavior in such a way that the non-Christians think it's honorable. I love the sentence. Did you notice the sentence? He doesn't say, oh, look, when you're going to be honorable, guess what? All these non-Christians, they're going to love you. They think they're going to, you're going to be awesome. And he says, oh, when they falsely accuse you, there's an assumption it's going to happen. They will falsely speak against you. But his response is, don't fight back, but be, keep it honorable. But the goal is not so that you can show off or slam dunk them. The goal is for the end goal, when the King of Kings appears again. And on that day, somehow the non-Christians will give account of the good works that you did towards them. 
because of who they are, because of the gospel. It's shaped everything. Friends, is that our response today in 2017? When your friends who don't know Jesus tell you that you're homophobic, when your friends tell you that you are a sexist for being a Christian, that actually you're self-righteous, I mean, what's the big deal? Why don't you let all this same-sex stuff happen and the safe schools? Why are you trying to restrict our lifestyle? Why can't you just let people live as they want? For my American friends I often hear when they say, that, oh, Christians are a bunch of racists and bigots. Or you might have heard these words to yourself that when they say you're cruel and hateful if you're a Christian. What is your response? What is my response? I'll tell you what's been my response often. I roll my eyes and shake my head. And go, how dare they tell me what to, how to do things. Friends, these words are challenging words for me and are hopefully for you in a good way. That our end goal should be to live in an honourable way to those who don't know Jesus. And that by our good works, as we display the love of Christ to them, they will come into an encounter with him. That's why we do what we do. So as you live this life today, our call is to live in a particular way. That we need to keep our conduct with Christians honorable. It's a language that says that you keep your lifestyle beautiful amongst these non-Christians. I think, friends, as you and I engage with our non-Christian friends, when we have this big view of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done in us, it should compel us to live a particular way to know that we are precious in God's eyes, that we've been called to live in a particular way, that Christ is at work in us, he's building his stuff in us and his spirit is in us, that we have affirmation and acceptance to the king of the universe, and then he sent us on a mission to proclaim the excellency of Christ as we live in this land as exiles, waiting for his return. I reckon if we had this kind of view, we may be better witnesses to our non-Christian friends and be more caring towards them. To understand we have a saviour who gave his life as a ransom, who became the rejected one on our behalf, who now is the cornerstone, also the stumbling block where we are now called to live and proclaim his excellencies. Church, may we grow based on this, that may we grow based on this, may we continue to be a tasteful community once we've tasted the goodness of our Savior, being built up, living as a holy people, as exiles in this world, doing the good work to a broken and dark world who need to hear and see the excellency of Christ. Because this is what our Savior did the King of Kings who came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And for those of us who believe in him, guess what? You're saved and you're actually under no shame. So as world, as we head out, as accusations come, we know we have a Father and God who affirms us. And we can take refuge in this truth because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are living stones, a holy people, a holy priesthood, citizens of heaven, proclaiming the excellency of Christ till his return, even when people hate us for all of God's glory. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our precious stone. I thank you that you are our living stone. I thank you that you are at work in our lives. Help us to cut away and put away things. And for our friends who find you a stumbling block, help us to be honorable and our witness to them. Or empower us to be a church, not just individually, but as a community who will continue to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.